So today we're going to continue with our eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. This is the 69th lesson in this, and we are on element six. If you look at Roman numeral one, you'll see that uh, there are eight elements listed there, and we are on six, receiving Jesus Christ, which is also con, uh, called responding to the gospel, and uh, we're trying to understand key components and exchanges of the doctrines of salvation, which is also called soteriology to those of you who are theologically minded. And so we've been on the ideas of salvation for uh, about 20 weeks. Last week we looked at eight exchanges made in the cross and how you have, and the things you have to do to make sure you enter in them, because today we've reduced the gospel to a sinner's prayer and this kind of punch the ticket to heaven kind of thing, which there's just no biblical justification for. And so will you really enter into the gospel by trading your life for Christ's life? And can you look at your life in attitudes, in motivation, in character, in habits, in disciplines, in purpose, and say, my life has changed to Christ's life in these areas? That's really, that's really the key. Like, can you, again... Listen to that carefully. Like, can you look at Christ and say, what I was in terms of attitudes, motivations, goals, habits, character, discipline, have I traded what I, who I was? Has is that, is that died in, with Christ's death? And has who he is been birthed in me? And are those now the real attitudes and motivations that I'm living out of? So... That's all the review I'm going to do today because I really want to get into this. I'm, I'm so excited about this topic, and I actually think it's a topic that even most of the people who are pretty theological in our church will learn a little something. You know, we have, you know, we have the, uh, always the problem of when you sow to study the Word, study the Word, study the Word. We've built kind of a culture of biblical studies here, and so you get uh, more and more people that are starting to pass me in their depth of insight and understanding and so forth, and and presenting something that they don't know is not that easy, but I always remind myself that it's always, always about reminding ourselves than, rather than learning something new. But I think today, uh, if we just you know, look at this topic called adoption, uh, which is a big word in the New Testament concerning uh, our, you know, what happens to us when we receive Christ. When we come into Christ, we are adopted into God's family. And this is a much bigger concept than what we've made it today. And we're going to look at some of the reasons why, not that much, a little bit, touch on those. But we're mostly going to look at what biblically adoption should be. And it should be something much bigger and more important uh, than we've ever understood. So, uh, again, adoption is a neglected, misunderstood, and undervalued uh, Biblical concept. In fact, I don't recall uh, ever hearing any pastor teach a message on the biblical concept of adoption. And it's any kind of gospel book, uh, any kind of systematic theology, it's usually glossed over. Uh, those who would touch on it tend to be from the Reformed faith and perspective and uh, or the ancient uh, uh, patristic age. So... Let's, uh, let's get into this scripturally by first by just reading a few scriptures from the New Testament about our being adopted in Christ. Ephesians 1, as you know, verse 3 through approximately 17, if I remember, 
is one run-on sentence. So that's kind of, a, it's one of the things that help you understand Ephesians is that much of chapter one, then again, much of chapter two, and then again, much of chapter three are long run-on sentences because in the Greek, there were no spaces between the words, no punctuation. You could only tell the parts of speech by the word endings, right? And so uh, you'll see that uh, although those who, put the verses with the Bible in approximately the 8th century and so forth, did a good job. In many good translations, uh, in, in Ephesians 1, some of the verses will come right in the middle of sentences. <laughs> because where the punctuation really uh, is supposed to be is a little bit of a crapshoot. It's not a crapshoot. It's a little bit of a studied guess by its scholars work with. And so one of the things that will help you get more out of out of uh, some of Paul's writings, especially the ones we're talking about here, Ephesians 1, is just read it as one long idea, all interconnected, all, all words interrelated to the other words, inextricably intertwined, as I like to say. So for space's sake, I only gave us verses 3 through 6, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed, very important word we'll be looking at today, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, if you notice in the title of the message, Adoption into God's Family, I have the words succession, inheritance, dominion, blessings, curses. Um, flip the page over, and we'll start to look at this concept of adoption. The, uh, the modern idea, you know, adoption is, is a wonderful thing, um, but some cultures actually understand it better than others. Uh, when the Darfur situation uh, first started getting in the news some, many years ago, uh, much to my wife's chagrin, I really started looking seriously into could we adopt babies from, from Darfur, whose uh, Christian parents had been killed by the Muslims. And uh, I was sad to discover that no one has ever been able to adopt any babies out of the Muslim territories and stuff, because the Muslims won't allow that, because they don't want to, because they, they understand Adoption is inheritance, is innately dominion-oriented, is innately spiritual, is innately who will control the earth. And so adoption is not much, not just a way to add a child or two to your family, but adoption is part of the entire biblical strategy of evangelism, discipleship, dominion, and, and Christ, the mandate for Christian influence. Be fruitful, multiply, uh, subdue the earth includes adoption. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations includes adoption. And when you were adopted into God's family, it was much more than you punched a ticket to heaven. We've over-spiritualized everything in our Neoplatonic, Neo-Gnostic, uh, Pietistic Christianity today. We've made every, reduced everything to spiritual ideas. But adoption is about taking uh, control of the whole earth for the glory of God. So let's get into this. The, on the flip page, adoption, 
that relationship which God was pleased to establish between himself and the Israelites in preference to all their nations as his heirs and his, his representatives. The nat- adoption is the nature and condition of disciples in Christ, who by receiving the Spirit of God become sons of God and therefore heirs of God. So adoption is about being a joint heir with Christ of all that he is heir to. You know, I often will joke with uh, rich and successful friends, just as a joke, I'll say, would you consider adopting me? Sure like to be a part of that will. So adoption is not just a way for the homeless to find homes. That's part of the metaphor of the word, you know, that you, God has become your father and you have become one of his sons. And you, uh, you know, in, in Israel, an adopted child had all the rights uh, of a biologically born child. And adoption, though, is much more than bringing someone into a family. It's giving to them all the family has, ever hopes to be, represents its entire spiritual, financial, and every other kind of inheritance. When you adopt someone, you're giving them your whole being. Your calling, your anointing, your material wealth, your uh, values of education. Everything you are, you're going to put into them the same way you would a natural child. So, let's keep going. Romans 8, 14 through 17 says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. You want to know if you're really a born-again Christian? Can you honestly sense the Spirit of God leading you? Do you make decisions following after the Spirit? For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption. As sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is a Greek word, affectionate word, like Daddy is, or Papa in our culture. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That's one of the most important things. One of the things you'll find when, you, when someone uh, has that initial encounter with the Spirit and regeneration, and when you have further encounters with the Spirit, especially in getting baptized with the Spirit and then learning to stay filled with the Spirit, one of the great things the Spirit of God will do is give you a great kind of confidence, uh, boldness. Uh, just like in sales, I always taught, uh, when I, I used to actually get paid to train people to sell, and uh, one of the things I always said is, like, you can sell better if you believe in your product. If you don't believe in it, go sell something else, really. It's immoral to be selling something you don't believe in. If you know your product or service, and if you can deliver what you promise. So adoption has to do with all of that. Uh, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. When you get... When the Holy Spirit came on Jesus, although he always knew that he was the eternally begotten Son of God, and he was in the temple at the age of 12, confounding the scribes, Pharisees, and Sanhedrin with his questions and his wisdom, yet when the Spirit of God came on him, God spoke audibly, 
Thou art my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I always say you want to break through to the Holy Spirit till that becomes like a reality inside yourself. Like you sense God saying, this is my beloved daughter, this is my beloved son in whom I'm all pleased. And that becomes a posture of life. Like you realize that you're, you've been chosen, you're some of the most favored people who've ever walked the earth. You can kind of tell when people don't have that because they still grumble or complain or get knocked back by small things, trials, tribulations, whatever, Officer Diaz, uh, <laughs> too easily. You know, when the Spirit of God is bearing witness to your spirit that you're a son of God, you'll have a sense, hey, I'm a prince. I'm not supposed to just act like everybody else. That was the Corinthians' problem. They were acting like mere men. Adoption's so much bigger. Uh, you've re- uh, let's see, where were we? You received the spirit of adoption of sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies to our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified in him. Thank God for sufferings, the best part of life. Now, um, I think I'm going to go ahead and read Hebrews 11:7. Give me a minute to find that. I uh, don't have my favorite Bible here today. Not bad, got there fast. Uh, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he came, condemned the world, and became what? Heir of the righteousness that comes through faith. See, we're, we tend to think of pietistic righteousness. Oh, I stopped lusting or drinking or whatever. Righteousness be, means being made right with God's justice, with his covenant purposes, with his eternal decree. Righteousness means he's going to let you in on the family councils. And you're, when you spend time with him, he's going to show you what he's doing in the earth. And he's going to say, can I do this thing without telling my friend John? Just like he spoke of Abraham. The scariest thing about the negative eschatology that's in the church today is what it means is that 95% of the people don't really know the Lord. Because the Lord will convert your eschatology because he's not going to suffer the impunity to, to, to be associated with his name that he was unable to convert the world and had to come back and do it by force. He conquers by love and people uh, extending the grace that people volunteer freely, as Psalm 110 says, to join his army. And if you are excited about the purposes of God and chasing the call of God on your life and so forth, then you have been converted. And the Spirit of God is bearing witness to your spirit that you're an heir of God. And, that's, and you live your life and make practical decisions about what you're going to eat and what you're going to study and how you're going to spend your time and how you're going to relate to tough bosses or trials or tribulations. You relate to all of life out of being an heir of Christ. You know, people are always, well, I'm doing fine under the circumstances. What are you doing under the circumstances? 
you know, if you're going to, if you're going to, what God wants to put in you is somebody who eats problems for breakfast. And he can give you that more than a conquering spirit because it was in Christ. And that's who you are. Galatians 6, 4 through 7, but, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son that we might receive the adoption as sons. The dot, dot, dots mean that I just had to take out a, a parenthetical phrase so that I could fit everything on two pages. You can open it up if you want and read the few words that were missing. God sent forth his son, I think it says born under the law, born by a woman, that, he might receive the, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. Pretty close to Romans 8. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed. The whole Beatitudes start with blessings, and, and blessings are go to the adopted in the Bible, as we're going to see. So, uh, adoption, family, was first and foremost about a covenant succession. Okay, so Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac began Jacob, and so forth. Get, uh, family is about uh, passing the covenants and the purposes in the eternal covenants of God. John brought this out to us when he did his uh, teaching two different times on on uh, why the church historically baptizes infants and ties that in with the eternal covenant and so forth. Uh, you know, adoption uh, brings you into the, to the succession of blessings that belong to the covenant people of God. Remember, all through the Bible, the covenant people of God said, if you are my people, you will hear my voice and you'll do what I say. And you will be blessed this way, that way, the other way. We're going to look at some of the ways as we later. Uh, and if you don't obey my voice, then you're not my disciples. You're, you're, you know, so forth. And you will be cursed. Because God always deals with his sons covenantally. And there are chastisements. You know, if you remember our teaching on from uh, the Kingdom of God series, chapter 3, on major biblical things, one of the major biblical things is the eight aspects of all biblical covenants, one of which is there are sanctions, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And adoption in the scriptures was a way of making sure that the godly son got the inheritance. Uh, the, the firstborn son was supposed to get the, the inheritance, but that was superseded by this, the right, the, the point is we're going to see that you had no right to give your inheritance to a son that wasn't godly. You had an obligation to make sure those who succeeded you in terms of anointing, calling, land, possessions, purpose, etc., like Elisha was adopted by Elijah and therefore received a double portion of his inheritance, even though Elisha started out just washing the hands of Elijah, that is, being his servant. Yet in the end, as Proverbs brings out, a servant who is wise will... will rule and or share in the inheritance more than brothers so blessed are the gentle or the meek in ESV 
for they shall inherit heaven. Oh, wait, that's the modern translation. <laughs> They'll inherit the earth. And that is not a post-second coming of Christ promise. That is a promise for how you'll walk. You'll have more of the earth entrusted to you every day as you walk into the blessings of God. You'll have more responsibilities, more to manage, more resources to manage them with, and, and so forth. Wealth and, and the blessings of God are inextricably intertwined. It's never wealth that's an evil. It's the love of wealth that's the root of all sorts of e scubalon in the Greek. So it's not the wealth itself. Wealth is a tool of covenant dominion. You know, I don't mind telling you that in our Tuesday night and Wednesday night and Thursday night prayer meetings during the summertime when we're praying for the campus ministries, I pray God will bring engineers, <laughs> math majors, scientists, and uh, entrepreneurs that really got some talent that are going to create crazy, extremely wonderful businesses. Because that's necessary to do what God's called us to do. That's part of the inheritance. Now, let's look at uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. You all know already. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and so forth. So God never intended to abdicate the earth. I remember talking to a particularly dispensational, pietistic, uh, Pentecostal pastor and I was talking to him, and he was saying, yeah, we had a great service today because, you know, if you came forward and gave sinners prayers, and he goes, I just, you know, it's just, I just want to, you know, be able to pull a few more into the ship before it sinks. I was like, what? <laughs> Why would you pull them into the ship if it's sinking? <laughs> All right. Psalm 37, 21, for the wicked borrows but does not repay. In other words, godly people have good credit. But the righteous is generous and gives. Godly people aren't stingy. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit heaven. Oh, I'm sorry. Again, I keep reading these paraphrased modern translations. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. Now, cut off is a word all through the Old Testament for meaning they're going to be disinherited from the covenant people purposes of God. You were to actually cut off an ungodly child. You know, it, it's amazing to me today how many Christian businessmen I know and, and just Christian in general who share their inheritance with their children equally whether or not their children walk with God or not. I made it clear to my kids a long time ago, you know, obviously Jason, Carla, John, Emily will get the bulk of whatever little pittance we still have left after the government destroys us. But uh, <laughs> after we're fully robbed and left naked and dead in the streets uh, by the IRS. But... Uh, uh, and I, you know, I actually have it in a provision to give some of the godly people in our church certain things. 
Why? Because my life is, is to be about a sword, about an arrow, about a battle plan. And the resources are for the battle. There, I hope we're getting this. So, let's go on. Modern neo-gnostic or neo-platonic Christianity has over-spiritualized adoption and thus reduced this great biblical emphasis to pietistic heaven in a nice, mostly not. You know, like when you've read the verses about adopted, I'm sure you've thought, oh, that's nice. I was adopted by God. Isn't that pleasant? That means you've been grafted into the family of God in such a way as you're part of his mission, his purpose, his, uh, what, what destiny he has is, asso is associated with you. Getting, if, if your conversion to Christ was not a destiny bender, something went wrong. If you could look back and say, I'm essentially the same person with the same problems and the same addictions and the same fears and the same habits... Something is terribly wrong with your understanding of the gospel. Adoption is at the heart of the Christian hope, mission, and the future of the church and the whole world. We're going to see that when, you know, this would be very clear to us, but what happens is because we are modern Western people, when we read the New Testament, we read our modern Western culture into it. But remember, the, the New Testament was written by ancient Hebrew guys who were writing it out of their culture. And so the best way to enter into their culture is read the Old Testament a lot, or what I call the Jewish scriptures, because, of course, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament started in Exodus 19. So the Jewish scriptures have 70 more chapters called Genesis and the first half of Exodus. Uh, because, and that's, that's why, like, there's a whole kind of movement to get in touch with Jewish roots and stuff. Christians, you'll find that a lot of movements come out of the fact that when you received Christ, you got God's DNA. And so Christians have sort of a grasping, even though they've been taught wrong and haven't studied the Bible enough, they have sort of a grasping sense of, well, gee, we ought to be involved in mission, or we, and we ought to know our Old Testaments, and, to, and a lot of the movements that are out there are, are kind of grasping at what the people aren't getting in their churches. That's why there's parachurch structures that do evangelistic ministry on college and high school campuses. Because where else should a, should a church be invested? I'm, the 90-year-old people in a church should be invested in the college campuses. They're the future leaders of the next generations of the world. And the Bible is always about the seed and the future generations. The greatest prophet in the Bible is who? Well, next to Jesus. Who did, the, who did Jesus say was the greatest prophet? John the Baptist. What was his primary ministry? Pointing out the next generation of leadership in the covenant people of God. And helping to raise that person up. And have him be recognized. The most important thing you'll ever do is raise spiritual and natural children, who, and hopefully your natural children will become your spiritual children, so to speak. Even if I can use that term, I don't want to be neo-gnostic myself. 
Adoption is inextricably intertwined to the biblical ideas of election, which we'll study in upcoming weeks, to true righteousness, to inheritance, to dominion and blessing. See, go through the whole Old Testament and look at how the Hebrew patriarchs related to the concept of blessing generationally. That's what we're going to do if I get that far in this message today. Hopefully I will. All right, so that's point C. Point B. First, I want to just give us a little bit about Christ being the firstborn of all creation. Now, when you see Christ called the firstborn of all creation, and he's also called the firstborn from the dead, that does not mean he was born first. Because in his, he was eternally begotten of the Son, of the Father. I'm sorry. The Son, eternally begotten of the Father. Thank you. Correction. Um, and he became a man at a point in time, but that has nothing to do with the usage of the term. The usage of the term means he's the heir of all creation. He has the rights to it all. God, ask of me, right, and I shall surely give the nations as your inheritance. Psalm 2. By the way, the Bible clearly puts some emphasis on certain psalms, like Psalm 110 and Psalm 2. And if you haven't studied those in terms of the New Testament, do so. You can't understand the New Testament without understanding Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is quoted over and over and over again in the New Testament. And the whole point of the New Testament is Psalm 2. So, uh, what this mean, when, it, when we're talking about Christ, we need to say he's the progenitor. This is, you know, big term, little theology maybe, or biology, I don't know. In other words, he's the, he, he brings forth life. I'm the progenitor of John and... Carla and uh, Victor and Elizabeth. But in a biblical sense, I'm the progenitor of Isabel and Susan. And whoever, whatever kids they have and their kids, kids, and kids, 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 kids. kids. <laughs> uh, Christ is the federal head. God, remember in the Kingdom of God series, chapter 2, when we define the Kingdom of God, one of the statements we made, I think, 20 statements about the Kingdom, and one of them is that God, from all eternity, has always declared, he has this eternal decree, that he would rule the world through a race of people born out of one progenitor, or one federal head, and that was supposed to be Adam, but he fell. And that covenant was renewed and given to Noah and his descendants, but they fell. And it was renewed and given to Abraham and his descendants, but they fell. And finally, it was given to his son who achieved the covenant's uh, blessings and promises and so forth. In his sinless life, miracles, uh, teaching, discipling, and most of all, in his... uh, wrongful accusations and wrongful trial, his death at the hands of of all the major enemies of God, Satan and his kingdom, the Roman government, which, you know, pagan governments represent the kingdom of Satan in Scripture, like Pharaoh and Babylon and so forth, and and his own people, John 1. You know, that's supposed to bring tears to our eyes. He came to his own. It's kind of like, yeah, 
uh, you know, there was a news story some years ago about these kids, his name started with M or Mendez or something, who killed their parents. And, you know, the reason it becomes such big news is kind of like, you're supposed to take care of your parents in your old age, not kill them, right? Uh, you know that, so... God has always designed that he would birth a race of people. And there's two races in the earth, those who are descended from Adam and those who are reborn in Christ. And that's all there is. And those who are descended from Adam uh, hate each other and they're full of enmity towards God, each other in every way. I always talk about, you know, in Western Africa, the, the Wolution tribe and the, and the pygmies hated each other because one was tall and the other was short. And they killed each other for that. And fallen men hate each other for, between the sexes, between the ages, between different skin types, nose shapes, you name it. They'll find any shallow reason to be haters. Fallen men hate each other over everything. You're the tall people. <laughs> you know. All right. There are the, the race of Jesus Christ must love each other, born on no criteria except that which can be seen by the by sensitivity to the Spirit of God. And that's why what we're doing in building this multicultural, diverse, multicultural, multi-socioeconomic-stash church is the most important thing that could ever be done. Because it's precisely because Western Christianity has none of that right now that it's a mockery. Anyway, how did I get on that? Let's get into Jesus the heir. Hebrews 1 one through six, but you could read all the way through chapter two or just listen to John's series on Hebrews. Uh, God, after he spoke long ago, in many portions, many ways, spoke through his son, who he appointed heir of all things, not just heaven, through whom also he made the spiritual parts of the world. Oh, wait, that's Manichaeism, it's called. You'll study that in the church history class. And he is the radiance of his glory, an exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. He made purification of sins, and he has inherited a more excellent name. Names in the Bible have to do with authority, uh, identity, and your, your, the, biggest, the best thing you can give someone is your name. Make sure you have a name that it would be an honor to take. That's how you know when you're ready, single brothers, to get married. When that person would be very fortunate to be given your name. Now, uh, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, that is the heir of the world. Colossians 1, he's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, that is the heir of the whole creation. And later on in verse 6, he says... Uh, he's inherited, or, or the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? I've actually seen modern theologians debate that and not know what that means. That's ridiculous. It's self-evident. We were all born dead. And those who've been made alive in Christ, 
as Paul says in Ephesians 2 and other, many other passages, those who've been delivered, who've been rescued, who've been born again of the new progenitor head, King Jesus, they are the heirs, and they're the firstborn from the dead. They're heirs with the first, but he's the first one who entered into death. That's why his, he descended into hell, as the Apostles' Creed says. And that's why he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is biblically saying, read all of Psalm 22 and you'll know what I'm going through. Whenever the Old Testament, New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's telling you to quote, to read it in context. And he's, he is temporarily, for some cosmic incident, instant, instant, that's the word I'm looking for, cosmic instant. He, his fellowship, his eternal perfect fellowship with the Father and the Son is broken because he took this sin of the world on himself. And God can, the Father can't look at sin. And therefore he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he is spiritually dead at that point. Which always leads to physical death, and in his case did so rapidly since he was bleeding to death. And he's the firstborn from that dead race. And if you're a, from God and in Christ today, you've been reborn into to the firstborn from the dead's family. Just like if you study, one of the reasons it's terrible not to study history is you need to study kingdoms. You need to understand a little bit about the life of a court. You know, at the court, you know, Esther is a good book to read if you want to know a little bit about court life. There was a certain kind of way of life in the court. You couldn't just come into the king's presence unless he invited you. And if, if you came into the king's presence, you were taking your life in your hands. And if he extended his serpent to you, or serpents, boy, I'm doing terrible today, scepter uh, to you, then the guards would spare you and he would get you to have an audience. If he didn't, they would chop your head off. That's what Esther means when she says, you know, first of all, her uncle counsels her that you were born for such a time as this. And she says, well, I'll go in, and if I perish, I perish. But life at the court, had there, the, the king had lots of people at court. And being invited to be at court meant you were, you were, you were associated with the king's name, his dominion, his land, his, fi his finances, his purposes and everything that kingdom stood for. That's why during the days of colonization, probably one of the best metaphors of the Holy Spirit in the history of the world has been that all these imperialistic kingdoms of Europe, not saying that they should have, but as they um, had territories through India and Africa and other places, they would send a governor just like God sends his Holy Spirit. And the, the governor was to represent the king. And he was to bring the kingdom's culture and its laws and its values of education and bring a better, uh, hopefully Christianized civilization. That's why if you get it together with any people from Kenya, they like to drink tea very much. Because <laughs> they're British. <laughs> right? <laughs> so... Uh, if you, you know, people from India like tea, right? Uh, and coffee. <laughs> but is that coffee pretty common in India or tea more? Both? Tea more. So 
Um, let's move on. Romans 8, 28, that he might become the firstborn of many brethren. Now, let me, I've got just a little time, so let me go through as much as I can of this concept from the Old Testament. So in Genesis 27, there is a chapter that if you want some insight into, go back to John's uh, series on um, Christ in the Old Testament, the very first series we put on the podcast. You've got to scroll all the way back to the beginning. And look at the one called Jacob's Righteous Deception. That, that uh, particular message took more criticism uh, against John than any other message he's ever done because people are interpreting the Bible in modern ways, and they were wrong, and he was right. <laughs> Not, <laughs> because Jacob, when he deceived Esau... And when he deceived his father, he did the godly thing. Because it's never about the exact recitation of the facts. Truth is Christ. And truth is about the covenant purposes of God in the earth. And he received the inheritance and the blessing in two separate incidents. And Esau sold his birthright, his inheritance, for a bowl of lentil stew which we do every day when we sin. And even when he sought for repentance with tears, he could not find it because, as is clear, when Jacob in chapter 27 steals his blessing, all he cares about is the consequences for himself. He says, can't you indeed bless me, Father? And it's very kind of like an adolescent, very childish you know, that's all. He doesn't care about having offended his father. He doesn't care about having squandered his and father's godly inheritance, which was the inheritance of Abraham, Isaac, and so forth. You know, that to be the covenant people of God in the earth, pretty kind of important. Uh, he didn't care anything about that birthright. That wasn't as important to him as the fact that he was, had, wanted to do pornography right that minute. Or wanted to overeat right that minute. Or wanted to eat sugar. That was kind of my thing that I struggled with for a long time. You know, Jacob did the righteous thing because he saw the real value is God in his covenant purposes and the blessings of God, which he obtained. Now, I wish I could have a lot more time. I'm trying to developed the story in Joshua 14, 6 through 15. We'll skip that passage and we'll read Joshua 15, 13 through 20. Because this is so misunderstood. There's actually, first of all, even the great John Calvin really did a bad job of commenting on this passage. Hard to believe. And uh, modern preachers actually say that, you know, Achash, uh, where the heck is, there it is, Judges 15, 13 through 20. That Achash was guilty of, you know, greed and tempor wanting temporal things, or they spiritualize it that the springs mean the source of life and crap like that. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arab. That is in Hebron, uh, Arba was the father of Ain. Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshach, etc., the sentence of Anak. And he went up and there against the inhabitants of Deber. Now the name of Deber formerly was Kiriath Sefer. 
And Caleb said, whoever strikes Kiriath's scepter and captures it, to him I will give Aksa, my daughter, as a wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, who is Caleb's nephew, the brother of Caleb, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter's wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she got off her donkey. Uh, modern translations are so, so, so good because the King James says she lighted off her ass. And uh, couldn't, you can't say that from the pulpit. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing since you have given me the land of Negev, the south meaning. Give me the, also the springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now modern preachers say that she's being selfish and she's out of line as a woman and all this nonsense. Okay, what, now, so let's go back. The, the chapter I didn't have time to read, Caleb, remember Joshua and Caleb were the two righteous spies who understood what God was doing and brought back a report in faith, not in fear. And God gave them certain promises for generations as a result of that. And now as they're conquering the land, Caleb is so bold in his faith that he asked Joshua to give him a part of the land that hadn't been conquered yet. He, could, he was honored in Israel. He could have any piece he wanted. And he's like, eh, I like the challenge. <laughs> Let's take this area that we're going to have to dispossess a few people and slice a few people up. Let's go get them. And he had all these godly covenant men around him, including his brother and his sons and his brother's sons and so forth. So he says, whoever is the most godly covenant David, you know, Goliath killer among you, I'll give him my daughter as a prize. Now, not because she was excessively beautiful like we would care about in modern times, but because he had an, uh, an inheritance to give her. So, it, you know, like a political marriage. So Othniel, who's spoken of in several passages that I, that I listed in Judges, this, the whole thing is repeated in Judges 1, 11 through 15. And he's talked about uh, in Genesis 3, 8 through 11 in very high terms. Othniel goes and kicks their butts, and takes, you know, no prisoners, and marries uh, his cousin, which was allowed at that time biblically. And... Uh, and so forth. And then because she's a godly, he's a godly man, and she understands her father's godliness, she has the courage to say, give me the inheritance that my brothers would get because they're not as worthy as Othniel. And Caleb was pleased to do it. That's what biblical adoption is all about. It's about God grafting you into his son in making your works follow your righteousness, true faith always produces true works, and bringing you into a realm called the abundant life in John 10.10, 10, a realm where your life is blessed. And that blessing isn't just about heaven. It's about marriage and raising kids and having many kids for many generations that serve God. It's about uh, resources it, it, it's about health. It's not some cheap, modern, name it, claim it, let's just pray for it and speak in tongues over it, blessing. It's a blessing that you get over a long period of time from walking rightly with God. And Caleb's daughter says, 
hey, Othniel is the most deserving of your inheritance. Give, give us the best of the land. And he threw in more springs than she asked for. Be a little bit like when you're, if you went to your father and said, can I have $100? He said, well, just have 200 Because <laughs> I know you'll spend it wisely. Not because he's spoiling you. So I wish I could get into this more Deuteronomy and, and uh, so forth. But the whole idea, that's what, you know, Abraham in Genesis talks about how his servant would be his heir. And God says, no, but he, your son will be your heir. The Bible has a lot to say about adoption. And it has to do with heritage, inheritance, succession to the covenant. And passing down the increasing, there will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. And when you're adopted into the covenant, you're adopted into a family that will have no end to the increase of its geographical holdings, financial holdings, but mostly the hearts of men and, and, and civilizations and cultures. And whole cultures will come to the rising of his light. Amen.